invite you to uh, be in the, in the scriptures with me. Uh, 868 is the page in your pew Bible. If you want to turn there, 868 in your pew Bible. I'm not sure what page it is in your own Bible, but I'm tr- I trust you'll find it. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. Also, there's a handout in your bulletin. I invite you to have this along with it as well. We'll follow this uh, outline and we'll be in the, the words and the phrases of that scripture this morning. My, my wife uh, showed me something in the car the other day and uh, it was this, it's, it's, a, it's a funny little item. I don't know if we've, we've put it into practice yet, but have you all heard of what's common, the, the to-do list, right? You have your to-do list for the day and you might write it down, you might have it in the back of your head, but you get up in the morning and you, you see the, the long list often of what's called the to-do list for the day, right? Well, my wife showed me something called the Tada list. I don't know if you've heard of this yet. The Tada list is different. The Tada list is something you don't look at at the beginning of the day. Rather, at the end of your day, you get a blank piece of paper and you write down all the things that you did do that day. And then you say Tada. And that's the to-da list. It it might be more encouraging to do it that way because you can look at your to-do list and you're like, this is overwhelming. Interruptions come. You know you're not going to get it done. New things get added at 4 p.m. and you're like, I can't accomplish now this to-do list. At the end of the day, if you look at your to-do list, you're like, what did I do? All I see are the things looking at me of what I did not accomplish. Rather, the to-da list, start with a blank piece of paper. What in the world did I do today? You start to list off what you did. You could fill a page with what you actually had to do and did do that day. What we want to look at this morning is the idea of faithfulness, meaning this, if you were to look at your to-do list and your to-do list, do you ever get discouraged when you feel like, I'm just not as faithful as I need to be when the to-do list doesn't match the to-do list? There's a gap there. There's things I need to do and maybe don't get to them. Does that make sense? Or there's maybe a lack of faithfulness. And faithfulness to your to-do list hopefully matches, at the end of the day, your to-do list. You, in other words, you do what you say you'll do. Faithfulness is what we're going to look at this morning. Maybe a definition for us, a working definition uh, this morning might be, faithfulness is the quality of being true to one's commitment. In other words, do you do what you say you'll do? More so, would others find you to be trustworthy? Would others find you to be faithful. A synonym could be this. Are you consistent? Are you persistent? Are you dependable? Are you determined? See, being faithful, friends, isn't about being full of faith. Being faithful is rather, can others put their full faith in you to depend on you to come through time and again? In order to look at faithfulness, there on your outline, we're going to look at it in terms of uh, plant language. We're going to look at the root of faithfulness, which is Jesus. We're going to spend time beholding the faithfulness of Jesus. And then if we're rooted in Jesus, we'll see the, often the bad fruit that comes out of not quite being rooted in Jesus, or, or, or the bad fruit of unfaithfulness or distracted faithfulness. And we'll look at the good fruit that is produced by being rooted in Jesus, the good fruit, even the fruit of the Spirit, right, of faithfulness. I love if we quick read the text again together. It's short, but we'll read it again. If you want to look there in Luke 9, 51 to 62, 
in your own Bible. You can turn on your Bible on your phone, turn in your Bible in the pew. But Luke 9, 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, first, the root. Well, look how the root of faithfulness is Jesus. The root of faithfulness is Jesus. And to highlight this, uh, we're going to zero in on that first paragraph, verses 51 to 62. I want us to behold Jesus for a few moments and minutes together. I want us really to try to zero in on what do we see Jesus doing, saying. We look at the character of Jesus, and as we look at the character of Jesus, we'll notice the nature of faithfulness. And let's enter Jesus into that working definition of faithfulness, meaning do, do you say, do, sorry, do you do what you say you'll do? We ask the question, does Jesus do what he says he will do? I think we see Jesus living out faithfulness in this paragraph here. But first we have to ask, what did Jesus say he would do? Does that make sense? Before we look at what Jesus is doing, what did Jesus say he'll do? And then we'll see if he's doing it. Does that make sense? So hold your finger in Luke uh, 9. We're going to go back to Luke 4, a couple chapters before, where we see Jesus uh, tell us what he's going to do. Luke 4, if you would, this is Jesus saying what he's going to do. This is his to-do list, if you would. Luke 4, 17 to 21. I promise after this we'll go back to Luke 9. Uh, Luke 4, 17 to 21. If you're there, it says this, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, and here it is, here's his to-do list, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes and all, sorry, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus just said, as he read Isaiah, this is my to-do list. And if you notice some of the things on the list, if you're there, verse 18, he's going to proclaim good news and liberty to poor and to captives. Do you see that? 
again in 18, he's going to recover sight to, to, to blind people and set at liberty uh, oppressed, the oppressed. And verse 19, one more, he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' to-do list. And the, uh, the book of Luke shows us that Jesus is now on the road accomplishing his to-do list. Go back to Luke 9, our main text this morning, if you would. Notice how it starts out. Our, our text for this morning, verse 51 of Luke 9 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, you see what happens? He sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's still, he's still three years away from being taken up. And being taken up, he's going to have to go through the cross and a tomb and, and come out alive and then go up into the air. He knows the days are drawing near. In his earthly life, he's soon going to be taken up. And as he knows he's going to be taken up, where does he set his face? He sets his face out on the road to where? Jerusalem. Because at the cross in Jerusalem is where his to-do list will come to its full fruition. At the cross is where the, the best news sinners have ever heard will be proclaimed. It's where liberty for captives will be accomplished. It's where true sight to blind hearts will be recovered and liberty and the year of the Lord's favor is proclaimed at the cross. Amen? Amen. And so as he senses that it's time for this to, to begin, it's almost time, he sets his face. He calibrates himself. The GPS of Jesus' soul is calibrated to Jerusalem. And there's a road from where he is in Galilee to Jerusalem, and that's where he's set. But his, his faithfulness here is on display in this paragraph. There's three things I want to show you. It's there in your outline. Of three things, Jesus' faithfulness is not. First thing, do you see it there in your outline? Jesus' faithfulness is not distracted by lesser goals. Notice verse 51 again. His face is set toward Jerusalem. But look at verse 53. But the people did not receive him. Do you see why they didn't receive him? <laughs> because his face is so determined and set and calibrated towards Jerusalem. He has a, single, a singular priority among many tasks. Did you see that to-do list in Luke 4? He's got to preach. He's got to teach. He's got to proclaim. He's got to heal. He's got to love. He's got to serve. But he doesn't do it distractedly in other directions. It's got to happen on the road to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Preaching can't take him toward, toward the west. Proclaiming can't take him toward the east. Healing and loving and serving can't take him up north. He's going to go south on the road to Jerusalem, and all of that ministry will happen in that singular priority. Jesus is not sidetracked with balance here. He doesn't need to practice balance. You know what balance is? Balance is on your to-do list, you have 10 things to do, and you give each of them 10% of your effort. That's balance. Jesus doesn't practice balance. He practices priority. He's prioritizing Jerusalem, and every other task that he has on his to-do list is going to have to align with his main priority. Does that make sense? He practices priority here, not balance. That's the faithfulness of Jesus. Lesser tasks are going to have to fall in line lest Jesus be unfaithful. 
Jesus is not distracted by his lesser goals. Secondly, look at Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness is not dissuaded by others' rejections. Do you notice this? I think we see this in verse 53 and again in 56, if you turn your eyes there. 53 and 56, Jesus is not dissuaded by others' rejections of him. The people, right, in these towns, as he sends them ahead on the road to prepare for Jesus' coming, verse 53, the people of Samaria here up north did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And verse 56 tells us that he continues on to the next town. Do you notice that? Being accepted is not Jesus' mission. If being accepted and embraced by everyone was Jesus' mission, he would be so dissuaded when others reject him, as if I can't reach my goal if people don't accept me. It's not Jesus' goal. If choosing between people-pleasing and acceptance, and you have to choose between that and crucifixion, which one did Jesus choose? The faithfulness of Jesus is seen in his persistence despite the challenges and negative opinions and obstacles from other people. This is so convicting for me. My faithfulness and my, and my to-do list, my stick to if you will, is often so dissuaded when I encounter negativity and rejection from other people. You're thankful that I'm not Jesus. What if Jesus responded to his mission this way by being so dejected and dissuaded that other people have rejected him, and he turned and went another way. But he sticks to his mission of getting to Jerusalem. Thirdly, Jesus is, it's there in your outline, Jesus is not dejected at the slowness of his own disciples to respond. Do you see this? Verses 54 and 55, I think is where we notice this. If you look in the text, 54 and 55, when when his disciples, James and John, saw this, right? They saw the rejection of the Samaritans. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. You got to love this, don't you? James and John, they have Jesus back. They notice he's being rejected and kept out of the homes and towns in Samaria. And apparently they have the spiritual gift of calling down fire on people. And so they want to use their gift. They say, Lord, we're so gifted and calling down fire from heaven. Do you want us to use our gift now? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. Even the next verse, he turns around again and heads on towards Jerusalem. You see, his ministry isn't about killing sinners. It's about being killed for sinners. Jesus' ministry isn't about calling down fire from heaven, but Jesus' ministry is about getting to that cross and enduring the fiery wrath of God in place of sinners. And Jesus' closest learners, his closest men, the ones he's personally recruited, James and John, they completely don't get the mission of Jesus. And this, again, is where I look at the mirror of my own faithfulness. This is, this is the hot issue for me and what causes me to be dejected in my goals, maybe even in my ministry, when those I've personally recruited, those I've invested a ton of time in, those who I feel like these are the guys to share like-mindedness with me, when I, when I see rejections 
uh, in other people, I at least can look to my guys and say, well, 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 they're with me, right? And Jesus, his closest men, do not understand his ministry. And if this was me, I'd be like, well, then who am I discipling? The Samaritans reject me. My own disciples don't understand me. But Jesus stays faithful. Aren't you thankful that Jesus stayed faithful? Even when his disciples, even you and I, often misunderstand his mission. I would lose steam, but Jesus stays determined. Friends, this is the faithfulness of Jesus on display for us. I think we get a taste of how we're so much, we're, we're so not like Jesus, even from this text. Uh, point two there on your outline, the bad fruit. As faithfulness is a fruit of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit, or fruit of the Spirit, we see in Galatians 5, I think we can use some fruit language as, as we talk about faithfulness. I think we might see some dangling in the behavior of our lives some, some bad fruit when it comes to this, some unfaithfulness, some distracted faithfulness. I want you to quick consider the relationship between, let's say, the word fruit and the word root. Uh, the, the word produce, right, can be used as a noun or a verb, right? When you go into the grocery store, it doesn't say the fruit section, it says the produce section. And produce, the thing about produce is, you know what? It's produced, meaning this. Fruit always comes from somewhere. Fruit is produced from the root. So whenever you see fruit, you have to ask, where did it come from? And when you see behavior in our lives, we can't focus there. We have to ask, where did that behavior come from? Because you know what? Behavior is produced. It comes from a root. Does that make sense? So if you look at our unfaithfulness or our distracted faithfulness, that's fruit. We have to ask, it, it was produced, so where did it come from? I think I want to look at two bad fruits. First, uh, treasuring self-comfort produces unfaithfulness. And secondly, then, treasuring created things produces a distracted faithfulness. Uh, first, treasuring, I think, self-comfort produces unfaithfulness. I think we see this in verse 57 and 58, if you'll read that there with me. As they were going along the road... This is, again, the road to Jerusalem. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you see the eagerness of this man? There's, there's a likely, at this point, a horde of people following Jesus on the road. And one of these guys walks faster than everyone else, right up to Jesus, and he's so eager, right? I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus knows the heart. He knows the temptation of this man is to treasure comfort more than Jesus. And so he talks about that. Do you see that? In verse 58, he says, foxes have holes. They've got comfort. <laughs> Birds of the air have nests. They have comfort. Bears have dens. Deers have a thicket. I don't know. Right? Every animal has a home. But you know who doesn't have a home? The Son of God on earth has no place to lay his head. He says to this man, Fred, I don't know if that's his name. We're just going to make it up. Fred, I have nowhere to lay my head. And if you want to follow me wherever I go, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be hot. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be itchy. You're going to miss your family. You're going to give up your job. Do you want to follow me wherever I go? He warns that it will be uncomfortable. 
And he knows wherever there's going to be a lack of faithfulness, it's because there's going to be a treasuring of comfort. Does that make sense? How have you seen this principle at work in your life? Think of the areas where you find maybe a lack of faithfulness to what you should be faithful to. How is that rooted in maybe a desire and a treasure for comfort? How about your time in the scriptures each day? Have you seen a lack of faithfulness to be deeply invested in God's word daily? That's a fruit. Is it possibly rooted in a treasuring of comfort over God's word? It's just uncomfortable to carve out extra time to be in God's word, to wake up a half hour earlier, to go to bed a half hour later, to get time in God's word. Comfort can easily trump faithfulness. How about family devotions with your kids? Maybe fathers out there, it's uncomfortable to make this a pattern, to make this quality time, to really invest time in devotions with your family and your children. Do you see at all maybe a a connection between the unfaithfulness possibly there and it being rooted in a treasuring of comfort? How about taking initiative with evangelism with your neighbors? Would you know the neighbors on your right and on your left? Is there a a persistence? Is there a determination? Is there a consistency to keep up conversation with those neighbors, inviting them over, bringing up what matters in their life, bringing up the gospel? Is there a faithfulness to that? Or maybe to any degree that there might be any unfaithfulness, could it be connected to the fact that it's just uncomfortable to initiate conversation with your neighbors? unfaithfulness is often rooted in the treasure of comfort. Maybe a second bad fruit we could see in our lives, treasuring created things, it produces a distracted faithfulness. As you'll notice verse 59 and 60, this is where I think we see this. Uh, To another, he said, follow me. This is different now. Uh, A man ran up to Jesus before and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus kind of warned him. Next, Jesus turns to someone and says to that person, follow me. Do you see that? But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This man says, let me first. And that's the phrase, isn't it? Me first. I think we see it even again, twice shows up in this paragraph, me first. Now, Jesus is not asking this man not to go to a funeral. It's not what's happening, right? I mean, that's so insensitive, right? And Jesus, one of the commandments, right, in the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. That's less about kids obeying parents, but more about adults honoring their aging parents, right? So Jesus would not have wanted this man to disobey a commandment and not honor his father and mother, Likely, here's what's happening. As there's a horde of people following Jesus on the road already, Jesus says to one of these men already following, um, you, you've been with me for a day. How about you turn it into years? Follow me. Be my learner. Be my disciple. And here's what the man says. Let me first head home. Wait till my father dies. And when he dies... You get what every son gets when your father dies. You get his inheritance. You get the money. You get the security. 
He says, let me first secure myself back home when my father dies. Then once I'm secure, then, then I'll come follow you. Because this man just heard what Jesus said to the other guy. He's going to be homeless, right? So this man's like, wait, wait till I'm secure, Jesus, and then I'll follow you. Me first. He's saying this, Jesus, before I'm faithful to you, I have to go be faithful somewhere else. See, it's a distracted faithfulness. And I want to I enter in a bit of a problem for us right now to, to solve if we could together. Uh, this is so common, where if, if faithfulness, a persistence, a consistency, a being determined, being, uh, being someone who keeps their promises, someone who's very hardworking, if this is a trait that is produced by the Spirit, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, then how are so many non-Christians so faithful at what they do? It doesn't take a Christian to be faithful at your job. It doesn't take a Christian to be faithful in your marriage. It doesn't take a Christian to be faithful in your career. It doesn't take a Christian to be hardworking. It doesn't take a Christian to be faithfully investing in your kids. So, so if faithfulness is produced by the Spirit and non-Christians have no Holy Spirit, then how is there faithfulness in their life? Have you thought about that before? Because so many non-Christians on the surface could look more faithful than any one of us. Why? How is that possible? I think we get a, a bit of the answer to that in Galatians 5, if you'll turn there. I promise then we'll turn back to Luke 9. But Galatians 5, 17 to 22, I think in understanding the flesh and the spirit, we can, we can solve that problem. Galatians 5, 17 through 22. Here's Paul's words describing the issue. He says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those of you who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and we'll end with the one we have today here, faithfulness. My, 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 the problem I want us to solve is this. We see even, let's say, a cellist, a famous, world-renowned cellist. Do you know how much faithfulness is required to be an, an excellent cellist? Do you know how much faithfulness is required to be the top, let's say, the top golfer in the world? There is so much determination and dedication it requires for people to invest in their, their career, their family, their hobbies. And if they're not a Christian, what explains that? Do you see two works of the flesh there? Do you see them? I want to point out two for you. Verse 20, idolatry. Verse 20, rivalries. Idolatry is this. When you love something supremely in your life, 
when something other than God is the supreme source of joy and satisfaction, that's, where you, that's what you're chasing after. It's easy to see how if someone loves the cello more than anything in life, why they would be faithful to it. Does that make sense? Faithfulness, then, isn't produced by the Spirit for that person. It's, it's produced from, it's working out of idolatry in their life. Look at another work of the flesh here, rivalries. Rivalries. Do you know how much rivalry can fuel an athlete, let's say that golfer, to be the best golfer in the world? He has rivalry against the other golfers. That's what's fueling his faithfulness. Does that make sense? Friend, I want to have a warning for you. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, you have the Spirit. And so the Spirit can be your source for faithfulness in your life. But you also have flesh. You also have rivalries and idolatries. Where do you see faithfulness in your life? A commitment, a determination, a persistence? Is it rooted in rivalries or idolatry, or is it from the Spirit? Friend, just because you see faithfulness in your life doesn't mean it's coming out of a walk with God. It could be that faithfulness in your life, that determination and persistence, is fueled by rivalries or idolatry to keep up. To be faithful to another love in your life. Because Christian, you've said at one time, if you're a Christian, that you will follow Jesus. Are you doing what you've said you'll do? You've at one time said that you'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. That in your church you'll be a disciple. That in your church you'll make a disciple. That to the non-Christians in your life you will be a witness and an evangelist to them. You've told Jesus that if you're a Christian. Are you doing what you've said you'll do? Or are you more faithful to other loves? Are you more committed and determined to career, family, hobbies. This man was going to be more faithful to his dad than to Jesus. Friends, it's possible to have large amounts of faithfulness to family and it not be from the Spirit of God. Large amounts of faithfulness to career and it not be from the Spirit of God. Large amounts of faithfulness to hobbies and has nothing to do with the Lord. Friends, but would you say your faithfulness is because you're a Christian? Because you've said yes to Jesus? Because you can't get over the fact that Jesus would be faithful to you. And so you're undone. And you're overwhelmed by God's grace. And that's fueling faithfulness now in your life. Which one could it be? We end this paragraph, verse 61 and 62, with kind of a hybrid here. Another, it says there, you see it in 61. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. Right? He's, he's showing initiative and eagerness, but he says the same thing the second guy did. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus says this, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know how many of you have done uh, any plowing of fields this week. I have not. Maybe you have. Only, only maybe Barry here in the room. Right? <laughs> I don't know if every one of you plows fields often, but here's the imagery here, right? If you put your hand to the plow, but you're looking back the whole time, 
how straight of a line are you going to plow? <laughs> uh, you're probably not fit for plowing. Maybe plowing is not for you. Uh, let's pick an analogy we, we more commonly come across. How many of you have mowed your grass recently? And if you're mowing your grass, but you look back the whole time, how's that lawn going to look? Maybe you shouldn't be mowing the grass. Maybe mowing the grass isn't for you, right? You put your hand to the mower, but look back, you're not fit to be mowing the grass. Let's raise the stakes, though, because an unsightly lawn isn't the worst thing in the world. Let's say you're driving a car, and you know who you love is the people in the back. But if you drive that car looking back at the people you love the whole time, do you really love them? Because how straight are you going to drive? And you're going to hit something if you're not looking forward. If your face isn't set on the road because you're looking behind you at who you love more, it's all going to be a wreck. Maybe driving's not for you. Maybe you're not fit for driving. Jesus says the same thing about the kingdom. If you put your hand to the kingdom and say you love the king, but you turn around and look the whole time at who you really love, maybe you're not fit for the kingdom. Maybe the kingdom's not for you. But if you love your family and you love your job and you love your hobbies, by all means, put them in the back seat. Bring them along for the ride. But look straight towards the road. Set your face towards Jesus, and you'll love the things behind you. Thirdly, let's look at the good fruit of faithfulness. The good fruit of faithfulness produced in our lives requires a heart change, that's a root change, not just a behavior modification, not just a fruit change. Uh, if you're wondering uh, why I'm picking up right now an apple and a roll of tape, that would be appropriate. I think you're all wondering why. It's hard to rip this tape. I know we used to have four trees out there, now we have two. But I think they're oak trees, right? If I was to tape this apple to one of those oak trees, how many of you would believe it's now an apple tree? Anyone? It's silly because although there would be fruit on the tree, it's not produced, is it? It's just taped on. Fruit plastered onto a tree doesn't change the tree. Friends, behavior modification, you just changing your habits into your life doesn't change you. Because what would happen to this fruit is that uh, it would be recognized as a fake, it wouldn't last, and it would rot. And friends, when you just start tweaking some habits of faithfulness in your life without getting to the heart, without getting to why there's a lack of faithfulness, a heart change, people will notice that it's fake. It won't last very long, and it's going to rot in your life. And so good fruit requires not just behavior modification, it requires a heart change. And friends, heart change happens. It's written there on your outline. Heart change happens by treasuring Jesus' faithfulness toward you. If you just see Jesus as an example of faithfulness and say, I want to be like that, guess what? How's that working for us? It doesn't, we can't be Jesus. That's our direction. That's our hope. 
He's our example and pattern, but he will always outshine us. But when he's more than an example, when he's actually, when you realize his faithfulness isn't going elsewhere, but his faithfulness is toward you, it's a game changer. When you realize Jesus has been so faithful and committed and determined, despite the challenges you give him toward you, you've been on the receiving end of Jesus' faithfulness, that overwhelms the heart. It softens the heart. It changes the heart. It warms the heart. And the heart starts to change when you realize Jesus has been so faithful to you. And that actually produces faithfulness then in your life. When you've been on the receiving end of Jesus' faithfulness, you can be on the giving end of faithfulness in your life. Meaning, when your evangelism, you're not as faithful in it as you want to be, when you realize Jesus was a faithful evangelist toward you, his cross and resurrection for you was the greatest news you've ever heard. You've been evangelized by Jesus. You've been on the receiving end of that, that he didn't quit, he didn't give up. It, help, it helps motivate you. When your time in the word fizzles out and you procrastinate it, when you realize Jesus didn't fizzle out or procrastinate on saving you, it changes the heart. We can start to be faithful in the word when we're lethargic or maybe just ill-equipped to disciple one another in our church, when you realize Jesus was never lethargic to chase you down and to do what it took to save you, it changes our hearts. And we now can, can spring to action instead of being lethargic even in discipling one another in our church. Three examples, just real quick examples of change or, or maybe what the issue is to get practical and you being more faithful. Here's three examples. How many of you, you're very able to read the Bible. You're very encouraged to read the Bible. You just feel this, unmotivated. Has that ever been you? That's probably the most common root of unfaithfulness. is isn't just an ability. You have a Bible. Or an encouragement. You, you want to read the Bible, but you're, you're unmotivated to actually get to it. Friend, what you need isn't just motivation. You need gospel motivation. You need, you can write it in, that's gospel motivation. Here's what I mean by gospel motivation. Law, law is a terrible motivator. You know what's a better motivator than law? Grace. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians and the whole point of the book of Romans is that law cannot do what God's grace can do. How many of you know you should read your Bible? You know that. Is that helping? <laughs> right? Law is a terrible motivator. You know what's a better motivator than law? Grace. When you realize God has even loved you despite your unfaithfulness, that has us get on our tippy toes a little bit more than you should have done it and you didn't. Shame on you. That's what law says. But God's law cannot do what God's grace is even more powerful to motivate us to do. Friend, don't go home and try to go read your Bible because law says so. Go home and read your Bible because you get to. Because despite the fact you've been a sinner, God has saved you anyway. And you get to open up your Bible. That's a more powerful motivator. Maybe for you, motivation isn't what the problem is, nor courage to do it. Maybe for you, uh, being faithful, the issue might be ability. 
really, ability. Maybe you just feel unable to be faithful like you need to be. Maybe to disciple your kids out there, dads, and have family devotions with your kids, you're motivated, you're encouraged to do it, but you just feel like, I don't quite know how. It's an ability thing. Does that make sense? What you need is a gospel community to help. And you can fill that in again if you want. If you feel unable, an inability to be faithful, a gospel community to help is, is just of such assistance. What I mean is this. Look at the other dads in the room and mention it to them. I feel unable to do family devotions with my kids on a consistent basis like I want to. Mention it. Then, after you mention it, ask for help. Would you, what have you done over the years? Would you help me know what to do? Would you help me be a better discipler in my home for my kids? And then after you've mentioned it and asked, avail yourself for more and more help. Be like, I've been doing what you said the last month. I'm running into this issue. Right? My kids keep running around. They're in the bathroom. They're, up, they're outside. and I'm trying to get them on the couch. Right? Uh, avail yourself for more and more help. Because here's the thing about faithfulness. You have to avail yourself to be helped. If you feel unable, keep mentioning, asking, availing yourself. And I guarantee a year of doing that, you will look back and say, praise God, by God's grace, there's more faithfulness than there was. Lastly, maybe you're very able, maybe you're very unmotivated, maybe you're just discouraged. Maybe for you, a, a, a pattern of unfaithfulness for you has been because of this. You're discouraged. Because you've been praying for your unsaved, grown children that are out of the house now. They're, they haven't been in, in church in years. They couldn't care less about God. And you have a heart burden to want to keep mentioning the things of Christ to them. You, you want to be faithful to do that and to pray for them and to mention Christ to them. But you're so discouraged at the outcome. You look around, you're like, I see no fruit of change. And that's so discouraging. How can I remain faithful when it feels like a dead end? Do you know what I mean? Maybe for you, discouragement is the reason why there's unfaithfulness. I've been reading a book, and uh, I want to just, in closing, read for you uh, a little bit from the book. It was so encouraging to me to stay faithful, even when you feel like faithfulness hasn't worked so far. Should I keep being faithful, right? Here's what this, here's what this says. Imagine you have an ice cube sitting on a table in front of you, and the room is cold, and you can see your breath. It is currently 25 degrees. Ever so slowly, the room begins to heat up. 26 degrees, 27 degrees, 28. The ice cube is still sitting on the table in front of you. 29 degrees, 30, 31. Still nothing has happened. Then 32 degrees. The ice begins to melt. A one-degree shift seemingly no different from the temperature increases before it, has unlocked huge change. If you find yourself struggling to build a good habit or break a bad one, it is not because you have lost your ability to improve. It is often because you have not yet crossed the plateau of latent potential. Complaining about not achieving success despite working hard is like complaining about an ice cube not melting when you heated it from 25 to 31 degrees. Your work was not wasted. It was just being stored. All the action happens at 32 degrees. Friend, the encouragement 
if you're discouraged, is that God is invisibly at work. God is faithfully hardworking behind the scenes. So friend, keep being faithful yourself because God is at work. And all of a sudden, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years, you'll hit that 32 degrees. And God, what God has been invisibly doing will show itself the whole time. Friend, don't give up. Keep being faithful. Lastly, the good news, and in closing. Friend, you are on Jesus' to-do list. And here's what I mean. Jesus wants to make you a new person. And you know how he does it? He is faithful to bring just the right amount of difficulty to make you more like Jesus. He is faithful to bring the right amount of discipline in your life to make you a faithful Christian. You are on Jesus' to-do list. But friend, you are also on Jesus' to-da list. Though you are a work in progress, Jesus has already presented you before the Father and says it's finished. They're accepted, they're forgiven, they're loved, they're adopted. You are on Jesus' to-da list. And at one point, you will stand before God in his throne. You will. Life is short. You will stand before God, and he will say, since you've loved Jesus, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Friend, he'd rather die than lose you. He'd rather die than keep sinners unfaithful. And the main hope, the main good news of the gospel for you is this, that friend, your hope before God, your confidence before God is not in the strength of your dedication and faithfulness to him. Your hope and confidence before God is in, instead, the strength of his dedication and faithfulness toward you. That's your hope. Not that you've been faithful, but that he's been faithful to you, and it makes us new. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for loving us in Christ all the way to the cross and empty tomb. God, thanks for being faithful. Even when we don't see you at work, we know you are. God, would you make us into people like you, faithful followers that would go with you wherever you would go. In your name we pray, amen.